How and why has domestic violence reached epidemic proportions in this country? Rachel Louise Snyder will be here to talk about her new book, No Visible Bruises. Who was the original so-called welfare queen? Josh Levine joins us to talk about his new book, The Queen. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Joining us now from Washington, Rachel Louise Snyder. Her new book is called No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us. Rachel, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. What a tough topic to tackle. I mean, how long were you working on this? I was researching it for about eight years, but the actual writing was very quick. I think, in retrospect, I think I was putting off the writing because it was so difficult, and I just kept researching and researching and researching because I wrote the book in probably six months, just in a like in a zone, and that that must be what I was doing was kind of endless research to put off the hard part, and then finally, at some point, I just couldn't put it off anymore. Well, the research really comes through both the stories and also just the the data, which I don't think most people are aware of. So let's start with that. How widespread is domestic violence in this country? It runs the gamut. It runs across race, socioeconomic status, geography, age, any demographic factor you can put on there. Every day there are there are news stories, whether they're small local papers or the New York Times. And so it's something that is so prevalent that I think we don't actually often step back and just look at the sheer numbers. And in fact, since my book has been published, it's only been about a month since it's been published, but new numbers came out about a week and a half after it was published. And for decades, we said that three women a day were killed in this country. And that, since 2017, is up by 33%. Wow. And 15% of all violent crime in this country is, is domestic violence. Is that still accurate? Yep. That's as far as I know. I mean, the problem with these numbers is that the FBI's homicide reports, which is where most of the numbers come from, are voluntary for jurisdictions. So, you know, Miami has never reported their homicide numbers, for example. So, you know, even these numbers are understated. And these probably don't tell the full extent of it because I imagine that not a lot of or not all of domestic violence necessarily gets reported. Of course, yeah. I mean, there's so much shame around it. Many victims who are men won't come forward. LGBTQ. And it's not just a matter of shame. It's also a matter of a lack of resources. You know, we just don't have, we're really behind when it comes to resources for marginalized people or people of color. And, you know, as I sit here talking to you, the the 2018 reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act is stalled in Congress. So, those resources are are not looking to be improved anytime soon. All right. I want to get into how we treat the problem as a system a little bit later. But I think one of the reasons why perhaps domestic violence is maybe underreported and also so misunderstood is because of these myths that surround domestic violence, all of which or many of which seem to fall broadly into the category of in some way placing blame on the victim or undermining the validity of the crime. And I kind of want to go through some of those because I'd like to hear just how they're wrong and and why they're wrong and, and get your sense of them. So the obvious questions that people might ask when they hear about domestic violence are, well, 
why did she marry him to begin with? Why would she be with someone <laughs> yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to say, every time I learned new research, I felt like my mind was blown. I felt like I was Malcolm Gladwell in one of those moments of like, what is the conventional wisdom? And then let's find out what, <laughs> what the truth is. You know what I mean? And that's that's one of them. Like domestic violence is, you know, any of us standing at the receiving end of a punch would say, hey, wait a minute, that's not acceptable behavior. I'm going to walk away, right? But that's not how it happens. It happens very slowly, and it's a slow corrosion. And it's so important to, t- to understand how, you know, first somebody might say things like, gosh, I see how... I see how men look at you on the street when you're wearing that skirt. You know, maybe for your own protection, you shouldn't wear it, right? It's this sort of really manipulative way of going around the, going about the relationship. Or they may say, say things like, you know, my, it's my love for you that makes me crazy, right? Which is, again, like victim blaming. But the other thing is that it is not at all unusual for someone in that situation, let's say a woman, I know that domestic violence runs across gender, but for the sake of conversation, many, many women who are at the receiving end of of what we would call morbid jealousy, really, really over-the-top jealousy, might get married in order to try to assuage that jealousy. There's a woman in my book named Dorothy who met her husband when she was 15, and he slapped her a couple of times, not really intense violence that came later, but when she was 19, she married him. And people often asked why she married him. And she said, like, because I knew I could never escape him. So I thought if I marry him, it'll give him a sense of security about it and he'll stop abusing me which is sort of mind-blowing when you think about it. But, of course, so often that doesn't happen, and the situation just escalates, and it, it did in Dorothy's case, and eventually he killed her and then killed himself. The phrases that you gave as examples of abusive behavior stemming around jealousy and, and that kind of thing, does that kind of emotional violence fall into the category of domestic violence, and how do you differentiate between psychological abuse and physical abuse? And do both get reported? Well, they don't get reported because, of course, psychological or emotional abuse are almost impossible to charge in terms of criminal Mm -hmm. behavior. And we don't have laws in this country against that sort of coercive control. There are countries that have laws. France has one. The UK has one. We don't have laws against those right now. But when I talked to victims when I was reporting this book, that for them was really the worst part of the abuse. It wasn't the physical abuse so much. It was the the emotional abuse, the psychological torture, and really in some sense the anticipated fear of physical abuse. So there's a woman in my book, for example, whose husband goes out to a hiking area and gets a rattlesnake and brings it home and keeps it in a cage in their home and says to her, you know, I'm going to put this in bed with you or I'm going to put this in the shower with you if you're not complicit in what I want you to do. That to me is like, how do you quantify that? That doesn't even, to me, that doesn't fall under domestic violence. It's something bigger, something else entirely, a kind of form of of terrorism. Then I'm going to go back to, again, another one of those myths, because someone then might say, oh, well, it takes two to tango. She must have done something to provoke that kind of behavior. It's a complicated question. I mean, the literature in this country really had that as its as its underlying philosophy, even into the 70s, that, that like women were responsible for the violence that came at them. And I know that in 
lower level domestic violence situations, you'll, you'll have a lot of like, well, she slapped the cell phone out of my hand or he slept, you know, there's like, and that's not really the case that I'm talking about here. But I also think this gets at the question of our expectations for who is a victim and who is a perpetrator. Victims' lives are often messy, right? They, they are often in a cycle of abuse. Some of them have drug problems or addiction problems themselves. Perpetrators tend to, to have a lot of violence in their own childhoods, their you know, sexual assaults or child abuse or what have you. And it doesn't excuse their behavior, but it contextualizes it. So I think, I think part of what I was trying to do in the book was to excavate those very sort of simplistic ideas of our own expectations around how people should behave and who does what and who's responsible for what and, you know, all those kind of like big sort of philosophical questions. All right. I'm going to go back to another one of those very simplistic kind of questions because I think that, again, this is one of those things that people will respond with when you talk about domestic violence, which is, well, well, who do you know who to believe? I mean, you were talking about the victims sometimes not being necessarily, um, you know, them having complicated stories of their own as well as the perpetrators. My first instinct is to say, let's err on the side of the victim. For safety's sake, let's err on the side of the victim. I mean, I think we, I think these questions are being asked asked around the entire Me Too movement, which I, I believe that domestic violence is, is certainly a part of or sits adjacent to that as, as a, co- a national conversation. You know, there's a lot of evidence that we don't, for example, have the training necessary to understand some of the implications of the violence that people have endured. And I'll give you just one example. One of the highest risk indicators for future domestic violence homicide is non-fatal strangulation. And this is fairly recent. I wrote about this for The New Yorker, and then it's also in the book as well. Only about 15% of non-fatal strangulation injuries are visible to the naked eye, which means that when the police come, they don't see that injury, and they don't have the training to ask for it or to look for other clues, and so they downplay that in their reports. And then those reports go to a prosecutor who says, I don't have enough to charge here, forget it. And then we kind of give a signal to the victim that the system is not going to protect her. And sitting right alongside that issue is that when someone has oxygen cut off to their brain over and over again, it becomes a cumulative injury. It's a brain injury. And so you do often have incredibly dangerous situations where a victim might say, I don't know, I was on one side of the room and then I ended up on the other and I don't know how. I don't remember. And then the cop says, well, she's, you know, she's lying. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She's unreliable. And it's this knock-on effect. And it all comes down to training and communication. I want to get back to how the police handle domestic violence in just a second. But sort of one last question then that people will ask is, well, why doesn't she just leave? You know, if if, if you're talking about a cumulative situation and this person has been strangling or trying to strangle their partner repeatedly. The question then is, well, how could she stay? So she must, she must want it in some way or, or she's, you know, somehow complicit in this. I actually thought you were going to open with that question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that is a question that's asked again and again. And if I could, if I could 
sort of change one thing about our national conversation with domestic violence, it would be it would be altering that question to ask, you know, how do we keep her safe? Not how why doesn't she just leave? So I'll go I'll go back to the example of, of the woman who whose husband brought home a snake. In her relationship, her name was Michelle, his name was Rocky. In their relationship, there was really no evidence of physical violence to anyone that was around them, mostly his family and one of her sisters. But he would do things like not allow her to work outside the home, not allow her to have friends over because he said it was a bad influence on the kids, not allow her to wear makeup because he didn't want other men lusting after her. These are all sort of slow erosions of her sense of agency. And the goal for, for, for an abuser in that situation is to maintain control. And so when Michelle tried to step outside the home to t- kind of test the waters about leaving, it forced Rocky into a kind of action. It's like a psychological play-by-play in a way. So I'll give you an example. She did graduate from high school, but she, as I said, she wasn't allowed to work outside the home, but he allowed her to take classes. So she went to her local university And they said to her, well, you're only 19. You don't qualify for aid because you don't have enough tax history as an independent. And she said, well, that's ridiculous. I've been living with this man since I was, you know, 16 years old. I've been on my own. I have two children. And they said, well, you know, either your parents have been claiming you or you need to marry him and he'll claim you as a dependent and then you'll qualify for aid. So there the system is is forcing her to marry a man that she's actively trying to leave, to put steps in place to try to leave. Mm. So she goes and she marries him at a justice of the peace. Then a couple of years later, they they have an incident that forces her mother to call the police on him. And he actually does get arrested and he goes to jail and he immediately calls his parents and makes all kinds of promises to them if they'll come bail him out. Well, in the meantime, Michelle had filed for the first time ever a restraining order, but then she gets a call that Rocky's bailing out. And by the time she gets the call, he's already out. I mean, he's in and out of jail instantly and she freaks out and she runs to the prosecutor's office and just recants everything. She says, I've made it up about the snake. There is no snake, nothing. And what was happening there to decode that moment for listeners is that He is proving to her that he is more powerful than the system, and the system is giving her or underscoring that message by saying, yes, we prioritize his freedom over your safety. And so she goes and retaliates as a show of loyalty to him, essentially. And what happens is two months later, he kills her, kills their two kids, and then kills himself. And this scenario plays out again and again and again all over the country. Well, let's talk about that system then, that he clearly, Rocky in this instance, thought that he was more powerful then. I mean, it sounds like, at least starting with the with the police, that we don't handle domestic violence very well. I'm sure that's a, a huge sweeping statement, and I imagine there's a lot of variation. But how well are police trained? What, what is the policy like? Is there a, a real understanding of the complexities of domestic violence? And is there an emphasis on what you're talking about, which is safety for the victims? I mean, that's a really big question. Of course, you're right. There's a vast discrepancy in how these are handled across from one jurisdiction to the next. 
And I, I hear, I'm hearing that like, you know, police academies are under enormous pressure to like, you know, have fewer hours of training for police. I've heard police say to me, like, I had four hours of domestic violence training in the academy. That's it. Hmm. So I do think that we're not spending enough time training police. I think police get frustrated because they don't understand, first of all, why women don't just leave or why victims don't leave, right? They get called back to the same address over and over and over, and that's frustrating for them. I think they also have a sense of not feeling like they're doing anything. When they get called again, they arrest this guy, and then she goes right back to him, and they go, you know, four months later to the same house. They're like frustrated by that. And I think that's somewhat understandable. Any, any of us would probably feel that that was a sort of Sisyphusian task, you know? But I also think that there is not, for example, training on strangulation. There's not training on the psychology of domestic violence. I mean, when when Rocky had to show Michelle that he was more powerful in the system, he's not doing that in any sort of conscious way, That, but his behavior is showing her that. And when, when her mother called the police, the one and only time that the police were called on him, the police showed up at her house and said, well, what do you want us to charge him with? It's his wife. I mean, it's a family affair. It's a private affair. And I think that that, that attitude is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And we see that attitude all over the place still today. I, mean, we, we, I saw that with the, the Mississippi congressman who clocked his wife when he was drunk, and then they put out a joint statement saying, you know, the media got this wrong, and we, you know, please respect our privacy. We've had 30 years of marriage and not one single line in there about his violence. Hmm. I thought, you know, if some stranger came up to his wife drunk and clocked her, they would never put out a statement saying, please respect our privacy while we prosecute this stranger. I mean, you know, we have double standards. I think from my perspective as a writer, you know, I see the world through a literary lens in, in some sense. And so when, when, violence happens behind a closed door and we're given the message that it's private and then our answer is to take the victim and and essentially put her behind another closed door i.e. a shelter all we're doing is symbolically saying like we must keep this we must keep this out of sight quiet yeah you obviously talked to many victims you talked to police you also interviewed some of the perpetrators how did you go about that, and what was that like? I was nervous, not going to lie. When I went to interview the, this man who was in prison who had killed his entire family, I just kept, I got like fixated on whether or not he would shake my hand, and that hand had killed his family. I mean, it was like this, like, you know, I had a, like a visceral physical reaction, and mm-hmm. luckily in, in prison they don't let you touch. So <laughs> I had that taken away as a as an option, but I was I was nervous until I sat in on my first batterers intervention group or offenders group and once I sat in on one of them, I got a little freaked out because I thought, "Oh my god, these guys are like just normal guys." I had in my mind that they were rageaholics, that they or that they were dangerous or scary or whatever but they're not. They're just normal guys. And I think this is one of the the misconceptions that we somehow will be able to pick them out of the general population. And we can't. You know, I have four brothers. And so I thought I knew the, the you know, the, the vast array of, of men's personalities. All my brothers are very, very different from one another. But that, that wasn't true. And what I found 
was sitting in on these groups, and I sat in on a lot of them from, from coast to coast in this country, was that when you took the the sort of context, when you took the men out of the context of, you know, the machismo culture or whatever, and, and they were sitting in that group being vulnerable to one another, they really did not want to be violent. I mean, they they don't want to be violent either, but they have they don't have a, another skill set. They don't have that kind of permission. You know, I was just listening to the BBC earlier today, and we're sitting here. It's just about the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and they interviewed some British soldiers who had been there, you know, on D-Day, and one of them said, well, it was I was full of anxiety, but I uh, I went from being a boy to a man that day. And I thought, isn't there any other way you can go from being a boy to a man without violence? I mean, it's a, it's a very different scenario, but like philosophically, I just, I felt that answer in my gut in a way that was deeply unsettling. The sources for this, this kind of domestic violence on the part of the perpetrator, it seems so deep-seated and multifaceted and, and, and almost impossible to tackle. But do you, and I know that you talk a lot about sort of, well, how do we handle it? once it occurs. But is there anything concrete, specific that we should be doing on the prevention front in terms of the men who do this? The first thing I would say is we have to start with gender education when when kids are young, like middle school. I mean, I have a middle school age daughter, well, fifth grade, she'll be middle school soon, daughter. And I'm already seeing kind of gender lines drawn and expectations about behavior. And I think that's one thing that we really, really need to invest in is just sort of basic gender education when kids are very young. You know, one of the things that you see that is so common in domestic violence homicides is that women who are killed started relationships very young, abusive relationships, like 14, 15 years old. I mean, just very young. So I think that's that's one thing. I, I think the other thing is, as a social science the violence and the origins of violence are really sort of in, in their infancy. If you look at the domestic violence movement just in this country, it's it really began with the women's movement of the 70s, right? So we're in about year 50, say, and we're still figuring that out. Like, this is the first book that I have found that is a, well, I wrote it, but I didn't find it, but that is a literary journalism book about this, which is crazy because we've got books on poverty and homelessness and, you know, opioid addiction and all these other social ills that we're facing. But we really haven't excavated this and, and investigated this. And then when you look at batterer intervention groups or offenders intervention, it's half as old as the women's movement. So in some sense, I think we're a little in the dark in terms of what works and what doesn't. There's a lot of questions of efficacy of batterer's intervention, but I think this is how social science works. It's it's slow and it's meticulous and it's frustrating, but we're losing four women a day. So what is our alternative? I know you're not a predictor of the future, but if you could create the future that you would want to see with regard to domestic violence on a policy level, what are some concrete steps that we could take to better handle domestic violence in this country? 
I'd like to answer that two ways, one with a kind of global overview way and then one uh, the sort of street-level way. In terms of the, the big question, the policy question, I mean, first of all, I would pass the Violence Against Women Act. I would reauthorize the 2018 reauthorization, which is stuck at the Senate's door. I would also sign the Equal Rights Amendment. I mean, these seem like no-brainers, right? I would make sure that things like non-fatal strangulation should be charged as a felony. I would make sure that every state had their own statutes for charging that as a felony. Like in Washington, D.C., where I live, strangulation, non-fatal strangulation is not a felony. So I, I would do that. But I also would say, because I feel like people at the individual level always know someone who's in this situation. They have a relative or a friend or a coworker, and they feel very stuck about what to do. And so on a practical level, I would say we need to normalize conversations. You know, domestic violence victims often talk in a sort of coded way. They'll say, oh, things aren't so good at home, or oh, we're not getting along. And I think we need to encourage people to push a little bit when it comes to those kinds of conversations. And the other thing I would say just as a practical resource is that there's a website called thedangerassessment.org, and if somebody is concerned about their own situation or somebody else's, they can they can look at the 20 highest risk indicators and get a sense of where their own situation might lie, and, and that website also gives resources like apps and things like that that you can download on your phones. I will, I will add one more to that, which is to read this book. The book, again, is called No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Joining us now from Washington is Josh Levine. He is the national editor at Slate, the host of a sports podcast over there, and the author of a new book called The Queen. Josh, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the queen herself, Linda Taylor. Who is she or who was she? So she becomes this national figure, icon, villain, whatever you prefer, in 1974 when the Chicago Tribune writes about her as a woman who was getting welfare checks in Illinois, despite the fact that she drove a Cadillac and she was planning a Hawaiian vacation. She gets indicted for welfare fraud. And then Ronald Reagan talks about her in 1976 when he runs for president for the first time. He talks about her as a woman in Chicago and claims that she stole $150,000 in welfare money in a single year. She's touted as the biggest welfare cheat of all time. So she is the, quote-unquote, original welfare queen, but Reagan himself did not use that phrase when he initially spoke about her. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. On the campaign trail, he talked about her as a woman in Chicago. He didn't even use her name, Linda Taylor, one of her many names. He talked about her in specific terms that made it clear which person and which case, which anecdote 
he was referring to, but he left kind of the specific, you know, the identifiers about her out of his speech. So at, at once she was kind of made into this extraordinary outlandish character, but he also made it seem like it was typical that this was a problem that was just associated with welfare more broadly. What's interesting about it is that even though Ronald Reagan is so closely tied with that phrase, welfare queen, he didn't coin it himself. The first time that I saw the phrase appear in connection to Taylor was in a Rochester newspaper that said welfare queen in its headline. And then the Chicago Tribune takes it and runs with it, first putting it in a headline itself and then in more than 40 stories attaching the term welfare queen to Linda Taylor. It's really the Tribune that popularizes the term as a term, as an epithet, and also cements its connection to this specific woman. To what extent was this an apt phrase for her, welfare queen? She definitely was stealing welfare money. The amount that Reagan and others touted that she had stolen was, based on my reporting, very much exaggerated. It wasn't $150,000 in a single year. She was ultimately charged with stealing about $9,000 in Illinois, and the number that she actually took was probably a little bit larger than that. She did wear fur coats when she went to her court appearances, and she did have a Cadillac. And those kind of accoutrements were the things that led people to call her the welfare queen, I believe, was the kind of external appearance and the fact that she seemed to be reveling in her status as an outlaw. So what inspired you to write about Linda Taylor, which you did originally for Slate. I mean, this is a woman who, this this was sort of a big story in the 70s and into the 80s. Why go back to it now? A colleague of mine in 2012 sent me a link to an old Jet Magazine story that had the very broad outlines of, of Taylor, the fact that she was nicknamed the welfare queen, the fact that she stole all this welfare money, the fact that she drove a Cadillac. And I was not aware before I saw that story that there was an actual person who was the model and the template for this stereotype. And so that was fascinating to me that this this person existed. And it was also fascinating to me that I didn't know that, that she had been erased from collective memory, essentially, that the term had lived on, but the person hadn't. And then I did the kind of like first layer of research going back to what had been written about her in, in the 70s. And there were these stories in the Tribune about how she'd been accused of perpetrating this notorious kidnapping in Chicago in 1964, that she had been suspected of homicide in 1975, just just this outrageous kind of yarn that was just unfurling. And then it just stops, like totally dead. There's nothing written about her uh, after 1979. And all of these kind of tantalizing elements, they were just unresolved. And so just as a journalist, I wanted to know what the truth of her story was. Did you go into it thinking, I mean, Linda Taylor was obviously very broadly characterized as a villain, as a con artist, as someone who took advantage of the system. You found out that there was a lot more to it. But did you go into it thinking, 
on some level, like, I'm going to hopefully find out that maybe there was a reason for all this that somehow, if not exonerated her, explained her, or perhaps she was misunderstood and used in a kind of manipulative way by our political system? Or did you kind of know this is not a redemption story in any way? I went into it knowing that she was a human being, which hadn't really been represented in the coverage of her journalistically or politically. She was seen as either the supervillain or just a trope, somebody who wasn't given the benefit of having humanity. And that could work in two different ways. You know, if you're describing who she was as a human being, you could both look at the malicious things that were perpetrated against her both during her brief period of infamy and in her early life. You could also look at the things that she perpetrated against other people that weren't captured because everyone's kind of coverage and focus was so anchored on this welfare queen image that she could be suspected of homicide and kidnapping, and that could just be elided from her story. And so I wanted to tell a complicated human story and go where my reporting led me rather than be just seduced by this image of her. Well, let's talk about where your reporting led you and about Linda Taylor, the human being. She was born in 1926 in Gold Dust, Tennessee. What was her early childhood like? I should say that this information about her early childhood came from a court file that had been sealed. And I just wanted to give a little bit of respect to the folks who helped me get that unsealed. This file, the clerks in Cook County thought it was locked in a vault that was so old that nobody there knew the combination to open it. And so they actually blew open the vault on my behalf. Wow. It turned out that the file was not actually in the vault. It was just mislabeled on a shelf. But I just thought that that represented, you know, as a reporter, you need people out there, whether they're clerks or archivists or librarians, who are willing to go the extra mile to help you out. And, you know, literally blowing open a vault, I think, was, uh, was cer- certainly constitutes going the extra mile. But once I got that transcript of this case, her family testifies about her upbringing. And, yeah, she was born in Gold Dust, Tennessee. She was born to a white mother. And her family comes from a place in Alabama where – white separatism was official policy in the early 1900s where black people were literally not allowed to live there. And so her her family is part of this case, which is an airship case. Taylor is claiming that she's a daughter of a black man in Chicago, a man who upon his death was found to have almost a million dollars in his home. Her her family comes and testifies and says, not only is Taylor, not the daughter of this particular black man. She's not the daughter of any black man. They were, they were lying. They wanted to conceal her, her heritage, the fact that she was mixed race. And this was a secret family shame, I discovered. She was denied an education because of it. She was essentially exiled, not allowed into the homes of some of her family members. And so her, her early life is marked by this really deep-seated racial prejudice and the fact that her family, the people that are supposed to love her and protect her, reject her because of events that are beyond her control. Did that include her mother? Her mother in this case tells a totally bizarre story. And if you you know read the book, 
the courtroom drama here is just unlike anything that I've ever seen in real life. It's certainly reminiscent of your more kind of outlandish Perry Masons or Law and Orders, but uh, th- this is a thing that actually happened where her mother testifies that she was not, you know, Linda Taylor's biological mother, that she was left on her doorstep as a three-month-old with a tag on her arm by people that just vanished. So it's kind of like this biblical scenario that she lays out. And then her mother testifies that at a certain point, you know, her mother calls them quote-unquote colored people, came and took her away, you know, that she had raised her for six years and then she vanished and then she vanished again in a car and was taken away forever. It's, it's this really preposterous story, but one that I think speaks to the fact that folks in her family were not willing to accept her or have it be known that Taylor was somebody who was biologically connected to them. Was it hard, given the competing stories and versions, even of her childhood, even of her race, as she herself identified at varying points in her life as as different races, to kind of get at the truth of, like, where did this woman come from? How did she get to be who she was? So the how did she get to be who she was question is extraordinarily difficult. And people who knew her during her life personally were, I I think, unable to answer that question with certainty. She was not somebody who formed long-term relationships. And, you know, one of the first people I spoke to during my reporting was the man, Lamar Jones, who was married to her when she became known as the welfare queen. And the first time I talked to him, he thought he didn't know what had happened to Taylor. He thought I might be working for her. He thought I might be a cop. He was afraid of her. So she had this kind of hold on people, but she she came into people's lives very suddenly. They didn't know where she had come from. She destroyed things in her path, and then she left and you know didn't indicate where she was going. And so there was this people were perplexed, people were afraid that I talked to, and sort of trying to draw a line between what happened to her and what she did, I think is difficult and and perhaps, even folly. Like, I'm not trying to argue that the indignities that she suffered as a child explain why she became a a criminal. But I do think giving that fuller picture of her life, it does endow her with the kind of humanity that she was denied just by, by seeing the path that she wove through this, you know, century, essentially. Give us a sense of why people were so scared of her. I mean, you said that she destroyed lives in her path. What did she do? Lamar Jones was afraid of her because she told him that she had killed one of her previous husbands, which is, you know, a thing that it makes sense that you would be afraid. I was able to find three suspicious deaths of people that she was close to where upon her entrance into their their lives, they die not long thereafter. In two of the cases, she collects life insurance policies on these people. In one case, she's suspected of homicide because this woman that was in her care dies of a barbiturate overdose, and the, the woman had signed over all of her property to Taylor. You know, I also talked to people at first-person accounts of her you know, kidnapping them or kidnapping people that, that were close to them. 
And so she would get very, very close and, and intimate with people and use them and abuse them and victimize them. How many times was she married? Oh, I think it was seven or, or eight. And then there are these long-standing relationships that she had where you know I wasn't able to track down whether there was a marriage license. One of the charges that was eventually dropped, but one of the initial charges in 74 when she gets charged with welfare fraud is bigamy because she had married a guy without previously getting divorced. Did she have any kids? Yeah, she had five kids that I'm certain were her kids. She also had children with her that would kind of come and go that, you know, the folks that I spoke with attested to that they said they weren't sure whether they were her children and they would vanish and arrive without explanation. So we started off with the fact that this is a this is a human being, obviously. She was turned into this caricature, vicious stereotype. What did you come away thinking about her? Did you feel, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before, but I mean, did you feel sympathetic for her? Did you feel like you got a sense of there's a reason that she ended up being the person that she was? And does it add up to the way in which she was portrayed? I have sympathy for her, for growing up the way that she did for being denied opportunities for having to navigate a racist society that didn't allow her to be who she was and that circumscribed her opportunities in life. I also have a huge amount of sympathy for her victims. You know, the ex-husband of the woman, Patricia Parks, who she was suspected of killing, told me nobody was interested in my you know, wife's death because she was a black woman in Chicago in the 70s. And he told me when I, you know, went and and saw him in, in Michigan, when I went and knocked on his door, you know, nobody's ever come to talk to me. And you took a long time to come. Nobody had, had ever cared to tell that part of the Linda Taylor story. And so knowing everything that I that I know and doing all the reporting I did and talking to the people I talk to. I can't help but have sympathy for for her and for the people that she harmed. And the thing that's so outrageous, I think, about her story when you look at it now is that someone who did what she did, someone who was totally singular, whose crimes don't represent anything broader, that don't represent anything but herself, how easily that was used to impugn this whole class of people, poor people, poor black women in particular. So, you know, you said early on that you wanted to write about her and her crimes sort of didn't extend, as you say, sort of beyond herself, but were used in this broader way. And that through that story, you wanted to say something about our country. What does her story tell us about our country, whether it's about the welfare system or political rhetoric and the way that it's manipulated in the press? I think it says that a story is really powerful and that it doesn't matter if that story is true. If it seems true, then that oftentimes is what matters and that her story at the moment that it was told it seemed true to a huge number 
of people. And Reagan wasn't elected president in 1976, but he still told that story during his 1980 campaign when he did win the presidency. And he told it when he was in the Oval Office. He told it as he was selling his first budget, which included major cuts to food stamps and aid to families with dependent children. And that Linda Taylor story had major policy implications. It affected the lives of people who were certainly not welfare cheaters, who were vulnerable people in this country. And the fact that no one took the time or paid attention to who this person truly was, I think, did major damage. And I think it is telling that this story hadn't been told. From the moment when Taylor became this villain, you know, for four decades, her real story wasn't told. All right. Well, you certainly have taken the time and told the story. And it's a far more interesting story probably than anyone would have suspected was behind that phrase. So, Josh, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Josh Levine is the author of The Queen, reviewed this week in the book review. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Emily Aiken, Greg Coles, and John Williams. Hey, guys. Hi, hey, Pamela. All right, Greg, let's start with you. What are you reading? Uh, I'm reading a book called Mostly Dead Things. It's a debut novel by Kristen Arnett, and our critic, Parl Sagal, absolutely raved about this book in her daily review a couple of weeks ago. I'm here to say that Parl Sagal was not wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really fun book. I'm about 60 pages into it, and it's the story of a young woman who's father was a taxidermist. He ran the family's taxidermy business that his own father had started and brings the daughter up in the business. And he has committed suicide about a year prior to the opening of the book. So she's trying to get things right again. It's a very funny book. It's set in central Florida and it's got a real sense of Florida. Parl mentioned Joy Williams and it's got that kind of Joy Williams lightness to it and obviously a sense of animals in a taxidermy (laughs) shop. The narrator is also a gay woman and there's a lot of her adolescence, the, the first crush that she had who went on to marry her brother. So there's lots of kind of complicated family dynamics and in the first 60 pages so far it's very much a book about chaos Muppets versus control Muppets or order Muppets <laughs> um, where the, the father and the narrator are people who need to have a tight grip on everything but the mother and the brother are people who are much more kind of artistic temperaments. And it, it's the family dynamic, how all of that is in tension with each other and, and how they depend on each other. But it's also completely dysfunctional. John, you interviewed Kristen Arnett. I did. She was one of our four writers to watch this summer in our in our summer preview issue. And she's very funny. She's very funny online on Twitter. That's where a lot of people know her from. She has a very, I don't know how large it is, but you know how these things go. It's a very devoted following on Twitter. And she was just as funny on the phone as she is online talking about the research she did for the book and the way she had all these crazy taxidermy videos open on her computer tabs. And she feared that her coworkers, she's a librarian in Florida, and she feared that her coworkers would walk by and think she was a serial killer. (laughs) Of animals. There's a lot here with her looking at people and kind of breaking them down into their component parts the way that a taxidermist would Hmm. or a serial 
serial killer or a butcher. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here's my deft segue, John, because you're reading Sigurd Nunez, and I think we associate her most recent book with a dog. That book is not the one you're reading. Also a suicide. Yes, the suicide is a big subject in that, in, in the friend, which is Sigrid Nunez's book, which won the National Book Award last year, and which is terrific. One of the reasons I'm reading the book I am, which is called Mitts, the Marmoset of Bloomsbury, is it's by Nunez, and because I enjoyed the friend so much, when this came across my desk, it really popped out. For that reason, it's a book you can probably read in a day. It was first published in 1998, and I assume the reason it's being reissued now in this lovely little edition is because of the National Book Award. And it's a novel based on real life. Leonard Wolf and Virginia Wolf took in a marmoset, which is... <laughs> I've yeah, read the yes, book. Yes, another animal. <laughs> you, you, a, you have to define a marmoset. It's a little... I think it's in sort of the monkey family. Well, I want you to be careful because I will note that a <laughs> listener... Wrote in after a recent episode to correct me on opossums, which I I was not complimentary of them as a species. They're not monkeys and apparently not rodents either, but are marsupials. Oh. So be careful, John. Okay, I'm treading lightly here. It is is definitely an animal (laughs) and non-human. And in this case, it fits apparently in the palm of Leonard's hand. It's a small monkey-like creature. And... Leonard Wolf had visited a friend with Virginia, and the friend and his wife had this marmoset, which the friend had bought for his wife, thinking it was, I don't know, romantic or something, but the wife didn't care. And he was, you know, having a hard time keeping up with the, the creature. So, and Leonard took an instant liking to the marmoset and vice versa. And so Leonard adopts the marmoset, and he and Virginia took this marmoset everywhere, apparently. And it's just what she's done here is she's drawn on a lot of Wolf's. Virginia Woolf's real-life letters and diaries to, she quotes them, I think, things she actually said about the marmoset to recreate that. And obviously, she also brings her own imagination to the situation. And it's a very lovely portrait of this time in their life and in this time in history. And also, (laughs) a few people who found out I was reading this, kept asking me, is it from the marmoset's perspective? And I always said, blessedly, no. It's not. (laughs) You just haven't gotten there yet. not that tweet. No, I'm done. I'm done with it. And it is not from the, you know, you sort of semi third person close get a sense of some of the marmoset's perspective sometimes, but it's just a a very well done, charming book that I I would recommend as a palate cleanser is, that sounds like I'm denigrating it, but it's just a, a beautiful thing if you're looking for something to pick up and you're having a hard time choosing the next thing. Emily, you're reading a very well-done, charming book in a very different way. Right. I was wondering about the segue to my, to my commentary. <laughs> it's hard to go from taxidermy and marmosets. It is. To, anything, to art really. criticism. <laughs> right. So, on a very different note, I'm reading Hot, Cold, Heavy Light, which is a collection of 100 columns and two profiles are included by Peter Sheldahl currently the art critic for The New Yorker. This anthology is fantastic. It covers 30 years in Sheldahl's career, going back to when he was an art critic for The Village Voice and wrote for a now-defunct magazine called Seven Days. I feel like now-defunct is like the prerequisite. You have to put that in front of the word magazine in like (laughs) 80% of the cases. (laughs) Yes, well, I can't argue with that. I will say one of the interesting things about reading so many of his columns together is I realize I'm, I'm a little more excited, I love all of them, about the earlier work. He was a little bit looser limbed, a little more uninhibited back in those good old magazine days, I guess we all were. The voice is pretty loose (laughs) (laughs) But he is the one critic I routinely read 
whether I'm going to see the show he's reviewing or not. Our reviewer, Charles Finch, wrote a fabulous review for us in the Sunday Book Review recently and called Sheldahl not just a great critic, but a great artist. And I agree with that unabashedly. (laughs) You read him for the surprising insights, the smarts, the rigor, but also the kind of contact high that seeing art really is for him. In a review of an Oliver Eliasson show at the cavernous Turbine Hall at the Tate Modern in London, Oliver Eliasson is this Danish installation artist who's brilliant. And he did an installation of an, a giant artificial sun that filled the entire multi-story space. And Sheldahl describes these bodies strewn across the floor, gazing up as if felled by bliss. And I've, I've never forgotten that, that phrase because it seems to embody Sheldahl's whole M.O. He's always felled by bliss in his reviews. Um, that would have been a good title for the collection. Uh, he's just he's an enthusiast, and it's surprising to, to notice that because he is so thoughtful and rigorous. He's thinking so much. But, you know, for example, looking at a de Kooning from 1944, he talks about its technical brilliance having the effect on him like a plane taking off when the acceleration presses you against the seat. Hmm. The textures in Velasquez, who's probably his favorite artist, his favorite painting in the world is Las Meninas. And it's just thrilling to read him. And he talks about the techniques in Las Meninas as an express elevator to heaven. And, you know, he can write about anything. He loves painters. I was going to say, loves it sounds paintings. like he really covers the whole range in, in terms of styles and, and he does. He does. classics and he contemporary. He starts with Warhol. It starts with Warhol, and, and he mixes in personal anecdotes that are really wonderful. So he actually discovered his calling at a Warhol show. It was 1965. He's in Paris. He's a footloose wannabe poet. He stumbles into an exhibition of silkscreen flowers, and he's felled by bliss. And he hightails it to New York. His thought is, wrong city. Got to get back. <laughs> and that's the beginning of his great love affair. I would definitely encourage people to read Charles Finch's review online. It is really, really great. And also, I think because this collection is out, people are talking about Sheldahl. And someone on Twitter posted a piece after the poet Frank O'Hara died that he oh, wrote, that right. Sheldahl wrote in The Village Voice, a pretty long piece about O'Hara that is totally brilliant. And I think Sheldahl was like, I don't know, he couldn't have been more than in his mid-20s when he wrote yes. it. That was a yes. great Yeah, I would piece. track that yeah. down too. I'm thinking he's about 78, but you read him and he's, he's the embodiment of cool. He's just t- totally hip. So is his daughter, who writes for us, Ada Calhoun. Yeah, she's very cool, too. Yes. It's a cool Very family. New York. Very cool New York family. Yes. Pamela, what are you reading this week? I'm reading a novel that, Emily, actually, maybe you can talk a little bit about, too, because I know you just started it, Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips. And I should say that Julia Phillips will be a guest on next week's podcast, so we'll hear more about this directly from the author. But this is a book that I picked up based on two things. One— our review, which was by Ivy Picota, was really enthusiastic. There's been a number of reviews of this book, and they, I think it's been universal praise. It's a debut, but also because of the setting, which is in Kamchatka, a place that I— You say I, that so expertly, Pamela. I say that with the expertise of a seasoned risk player. I think that's how—if <laughs> any of us are aware of Kamchatka, it is because of its key placement on the risk board to the far east. It is attached—it's a peninsula off of Siberia, just north of Japan. And part of the, the book's interest is that just the, the that setting, which is it's totally unfamiliar to me otherwise— 
It's a contemporary novel. And so as with many contemporary novels that take place in Russia today, a lot of it is about the sort of post-Soviet situation there and just how the fall of the Soviet Union impacted different areas and different parts of society in different ways. And, and a lot of it is about the tension between the immigrants to that area who are the Russians and the indigenous people who are various Siberian ethnic tribes. It starts off very almost misleadingly into think, making you think this is going to be a thriller, which it, it really isn't. There is a thriller aspect to it, but it is a lot more than that. It's a very literary book, though, yes, there can be literary thrillers. And, but I wouldn't even say this is a literary thriller. It's really a book about women. And the first chapter, the thriller-like chapter, is two girls who suddenly sort of disappear, seem to be kidnapped from a provincial city in Kamchatka. And the title refers to a story that the older sister tells the younger sister before they're taken away, which is about a town on Kamchatka that was subsumed by a tsunami wave and fell off a cliff and and that the town completely disappeared from the face of the earth. And to my mind, at least, that's what the book is about. It's about the fact that you can have a situation that you take to be, if not permanent, sort of your understanding of reality and have one unexpected event suddenly take that sense of surety away from you so that you are completely unmoored. And that is what kind of happens to many of the women in the novel. It's about the, the instability of life in general. That, that you, it's, it's like, I think Ira Glass once said this about this American life, that all of his stories boil down to, you think this is going to happen, and then something else happens instead. And sort of how does that, how does that then play out? I just wanted to say one thing about, I've read a little more than the first chapter, which, so the thriller aspect is the only thing I can comment on, but my adrenaline just soared reading this chapter, and I I thought about it, and I thought about technically what she's doing in that chapter. Yes, it's the, and I don't think I'm giving anything away to say it's a chapter about the abduction of two young girls, and That's a conceit that is familiar to us who read thrillers and books. But the way it unfolds is in such slow motion so that I think typically an abduction is either witnessed or discussed in retrospect. There's a disappearance and there's an assumption that this is what happens. In fact, the abduction unfolds so gradually that it only dawns on us. You're anxious about these two girls getting into the car of a stranger. But their awareness of what's happening unfolds over the course of several pages as the behavior of this stranger becomes more and more sinister. So that it's only at the end of the chapter does the full weight of the realization that, yes, this is actually an abduction, lands on you. And it's just it's it's just it's an incredible physical shock. Yeah, it's, it's deeply unsettling. Like she just she unmoors you, you know, and and and, and so she she recreates that sensation of, of being unmoored that threads throughout the rest of the novel. And I won't give anything else away, especially since you haven't read it, Emily, and probably most of our listeners have not read it yet. I think um, there will be people picking it up, though, based on that. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. So. Well, I think we're all very enthusiastic. Let's run down the, what we read again, starting with you, John. Yeah, I've read Mitz, The Marmoset of Bloomsbury by Sigrid Nunez. I'm reading Mostly Dead Things, a novel by Kristen Arnett. 
I'm reading Hot, Cold, Heavy Light, 100 Art Writings, 1988 to 2018 by Peter Sheldahl. And I read Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.